Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions. Hello, this is Mark from Dallas. I love your show, been listening for a long time, appreciate what you do. Wanted to ask about Teladoc, TBOC. I'm thinking that with the trend of healthcare, that it's something that's going to be of value in the future, and I wonder if you think it might be something to hold or something also that some monster might come along and buy it someday. And provides unbiased answers. Now, Teladoc is the big name, but they're also all losing money. So the big question is, which is the, the eventual winner? Invest Talk. Over 32 million downloads and counting. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, September 23rd, 2021 edition of Invest Talk. And we're starting to transition into autumn and into the fourth quarter coming up here very soon. We only have how many days do we have left? Uh, about eight days left in this quarter, and only five more trading days. So this is the time that you need to think about your strategy. Think about your uh, portfolio and the risk that you're taking and the opportunities that you're trying to take advantage of. How does that align with uh, how the economy is evolving, how the market is evolving? And we're going to discuss all of this on today's show. Now, on this podcast, I'm going to operate with my mission statement, which is always independent thinking and shared success. And that's my assurance to you that I'm not Kramer. I'm not going to ring any bells and whistles. I am here to give you the facts as I see them in front of me and present it all without bias using my 20 plus years of investment experience. So whatever I'm talking about, stock, a strategy, a sector, this is how I'm going to present it to you. So I'm Justin Klein. Of course, of course, I encourage you to contact me with your finance and investment questions. And when you reach out, you get to shape the show to your liking. So I encourage you to do that right now. Interact with us live during our live stream program, 4 to 5 Pacific Time. Or if you're listening after hours, no big deal. Leave a question on our Anytime Voice Bank, 888-99-CHART. That number never changes. So let's get right to our first listener question now. Hello, this is Mark from Dallas. I love your show. Been listening for a long time. Appreciate what you do. Wanted to ask about Teladoc, T-D-O-C. I'm thinking that with the trend of healthcare, that it's something that's going to be of value in the future. And I wonder if you think it might be something to hold or something also that some monster might come along and buy it someday. Looking forward to your answer. Thank you. All right. Looking at Teladoc. And Teladoc is, uh, had a lot of hype during the pandemic and rallied dramatically from a low in March of 2020 of, let's see, what was that? Uh, about $100 a share, went all the way to 200 over $300 a share. Now it's at $138, trending lower, below all the major moving averages. And let's look at the fundamentals. They're supposed to lose uh, $3.37 this year. That's after losing $6.22 next year. And $1.45 Expected loss next year. 
let's see. So revenue is up 109%. And still has a, even after dropping 55% from its 52-week high, it is still valued at $22 billion and doing a run rate of roughly $2 billion plus per year in revenue, but losing money doing so. Uh, this is a competitive space, and I like the space in general. Uh, something I'm definitely monitoring because I think this is the future. Where tele teleconferencing in general is spreading to all different uh, parts of the workforce across different industries. We see that with people working from home across various industries as much as we can, and medicine is no different. Now, during the pandemic, a lot of people were forced to do more telemedicine, but I think this is a trend that it will be more integrated into our medical system, and the question is, who will be the winner? Now, Teladoc is the big name, but there are others as well in the space. You have an Amwell is another one, American Well Corp. You have uh, One Medical, that's another one. All of these are are growing dramatically, and all of them have bit different business models, but they're also all losing money. And so the big question is, which is the the eventual winner? Uh, Teladoc remains the the biggest uh, in market cap, where, uh, like I said, that's about twenty billion. Where Amwell's at about two and a half billion. One Medical is at about four point three billion, uh, but those are also much smaller as well. So. The moral of the story is they're all overvalued. They're all in a downtrend. They're all names that I would not touch right now. But I would be monitoring the space and doing your deep research and figure out which one you like the best. Uh, I like the ones that are either either selling the software itself or they have a hybrid model, meaning they have in-person offices as well as teleconferencing and making their practice more efficient and effective and attractive to uh, to patients. And I think those will be the winners. Ones that are just solely telemedicine, I think that's gonna, they're going to have a tough time differentiating themselves and keeping, keeping uh, patients because certain things just need to happen in an office. And I think you're going to need that flexibility. So uh, I like the space. I like that you're doing research. But Teladoc is not my favorite within the space. Now, today's focus point is based on this story. Make it ra- making rapid fire changes to take advantage of market trends is easier said than done. We're going to talk about tactical asset allocation funds, and there are some takeaways from this, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more, some other topics to discuss as well. But I want to get to another live caller, Adam in Texas, looking at Prudential. Hey, Justin. This is Adam. Uh I've been listening for a while. I won't say long-time listener, but I've been listening since the pandemic started, and I appreciate what you guys do. Uh, my question is about uh, Prudential uh, PRU, and they have a decent dividend, but I, I'm trying to pull out um, a portion of my investments so that I can reallocate that to um, – maybe a potential winner or long-time investment uh, option. But I was looking at PRU, and I was wondering if you could give me kind of a, a breakdown of what you think. Okay, so you're saying Prudential is something that you would allocate towards longer term, as a long-term buy and hold type of thing? Yeah, uh, probably over three years. 
Okay. Well, let's take a look at Prudential. Uh, in three years, I would call me- three years medium term. Uh, I wouldn't consider that long term. I think it has to be at least five years for, for to, to be long term. So I understand that. Now, Prudential is a large diversified insurance company offering annuities, life insurance, retirement plan services, and asset management products, both here in the U.S. and Japan mainly. They're the second largest life insurance company in the United States. So clearly very large, very consistent cash flows, $40 billion market cap. They're... Business has been suffering recently, but is on the comeback. It's only made ten dollars and twenty-one cents in twenty twenty. That was down from eleven twenty-four in twenty nineteen. But expected to have a nice bounce back year this year of thirteen dollars and forty-seven cents. But then down again next year of twelve dollars and ninety-nine cents. So you can see kind of the the upper trajectory of their earnings, but certain certainly choppiness. One thing that's going to benefit. Prudential and a lot of these insurance companies are higher interest rates. The premiums they receive, uh, the more in, in, the more income that they can get from their their assets and the fixed income market, the the better their earnings are, are likely going to look. So higher interest rates are definitely going to benefit Prudential, and that's why you saw Prudential up nicely today, about three percent on the back of the ten year, having a nice seven basis point increase, which is pretty big for the ten year. Uh, now. If you look at longer term, the profitability of Prudential on the return equity side has been high single digits, which is frankly not fantastic. few things I do like about it, they've been increasing their dividend consistently over the past decade, and they haven't cut it over that period, even in the recent, uh, recent times, and they're buying back shares uh, pretty consistently as well. So I like those two factors. Now, our value is closer to about $90 a share. Now it's at 103 So I would say it's moderately overvalued, but not drastically. Uh, it's a good company. Uh, probably not my favorite in the space. One thing that worries me the most is the, the regulation around annuities and their ability to sell annuities. And retirement plans, uh, there's there's just more and more regulation uh, around those products. And uh, I think that's the biggest risk here is how much will regulation crimp their their sales? And so do I give is Prudential a bad company? No. Uh, is it overvalued? Not, not, not significantly. Uh, uh, but profitability-wise is just so-so. Um, there are some positives about, like I said, the dividend and the buybacks. But ultimately, uh, this wouldn't be near the top of my list, but it wouldn't be a bad choice. I'll say that. Thanks for the call, Adam. Now, my focus point today is based on this story. Making rapid-fire changes to take advantage of market trends is easier said than done. So like I said, we're going to look at tar- tactical asset allocation funds. I also want to discuss the trends in the commodity markets and why you're seeing record prices for natural gas and other commodities, especially in Europe. Europe's kind of a a testing ground for government policy around climate change and fossil fuels, and there are some lessons to be learned from that. And then I want to discuss yesterday's taper I wouldn't say an announcement, but a hint by the Fed and what that could potentially mean for the market in the back in the, in the final quarter of the year. 
So I want to discuss that as well. But ultimately, I want to know what is on your mind. So give us a call, 888-992-4278 is how you call and ask your question on today's show. Now, let's look at the market today. Like I said earlier, the 10-year was up about 7.5 basis points. We crossed the 1.4% mark, which is the highest level since early July, early July on the 10-year. So you're seeing rates creep up on a potential taper and the stimulus package that is going through Congress likely to be voted on, uh, I believe it's either tomorrow or early next week. Um, So... That's uh, going to be important to see how big that package is, what are the details, et cetera. Does the debt limit get raised, all of that. Now, the S&P was up 53 points. We had that nice bounce-back rally over the last couple of days off the 100-day moving average for the S&P, which I've said this before, 100 days is one of my favorite moving averages. It, it really gives you uh, a fairly good sense of, of support, and oftentimes it will be support for the major indices, you have the NASDAQ, the COMPQ, that was up 155 points, a little over 1%. Also, it didn't quite hit the 100-day moving average there on, what was that, uh, on Monday. But we've had a nice rally the last couple of days, kind of stuck now between that 50- and 20-day moving average. Close the gap and uh, into some resistance. We'll see how the market reacts again tomorrow. Is that another follow-through? above resistance and that's really what we're into we're into some short-term resistance into the in the market or do we consolidate here or do we uh we head right back down i think that's a big question we need to answer and you had gold down on the back of the higher rates but you had things like oil continuing to march higher uh, along with natural gas so the commodity markets all remain relatively strong now we're heading into a quick break but i'm here ready to answer your questions on invest talk No two investors have an identical portfolio, so each investor will have different questions. I guess I'm wondering how I should kind of diversify. If the questions specific to your portfolio aren't being asked, your situation is not addressed. And I wanted your thoughts on the cannabis market. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein take Invest Talk listener questions each weekday during the program live stream in the 4 to 5 p.m. hour Pacific time. The Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes, so your questions are always welcome. As a newer investor, my question concerns positions. You have the right to remain silent, but why would you when anything you ask will be used to help you create your financial freedom? I think it'll probably go higher. And so I would keep a tight stop on it. So don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. Two portfolios are alike, and every investor has a unique set of circumstances. So don't forget to call Invest Talk 888 chart 888 chart 8899242788. Let's go to Andrew in Pennsylvania looking at G R W G, which is Grow Generation Corp. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Hi, Justin. Yes, I own a small position in Grow Generation. I was looking to expand my position. Um, I was concerned uh, with the recent pullback. It pulled back almost 50% uh, 
um, within the last month. I like their sales and um, they're starting to become profitable. So I was just looking to get your opinion on whether or not I should expand my position to make it a full position. Okay. Well, we're going to have to go to a quick break here. Uh, but I will answer this question right on the other side. Now, our Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes. You can leave your question anytime, day or night, and we will be right back. Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Let's go back to Andrew. He was asking about Grow Generation Corp GRWG. You said you own it or you're looking to buy it? So I currently own a small position looking to expand the position. Okay. Well, let me give you the, the pros and cons. Well, the pros are it's growing very fast. Now, this is a company that's engaged in the distribution of organic nutrient soils and hydroponic equipments, mainly to commercial and home growers of cannabis. That's, their, uh, that's why they're growing so fast. They are located in Colorado. Denver, Colorado is their headquarters, but they've bought uh, a, a com- commercial grow supply out of Santa Clarita here in California. So they're, they're looking to grow uh, nationwide. And the the trend of more and more cannabis cultivation is certainly in their wheelhouse and helping their business. Now, you're right. They are going to earn about 46 cents this year, supposed to earn 66 cents next year, which is solid growth. But remember, you're paying up for this name. It's about a $1.6 billion market cap on revenues of only $126 million last quarter. So about four times sales, uh, which growing that fast, not I think that's not too bad. That's not too bad of a multiple. But when you look at the operating cash flow, it's, it's negative. Uh, it's not really growing, although EBITDA does look to be growing. They're increasing their share count from 9 million shares outstanding in 2016 to 56 million shares outstanding today. So uh, as the price of the, of the company goes up, uh, they've just been continuing to issue more shares. Now, technically, uh, let me look at the chart. Uh, we know it's in a downtrend. It's been in a downtrend for uh, since the whole cannabis space kind of topped out back in February, uh, along with a lot of the growth stocks. I do think the space in general is getting a lot more attractive now that we've had kind of the froth uh, worked off of the, the cannabis space over the past nine months or so. Uh, the major support is around $23. We're at $27 right now. So you're getting down to support. The biggest risk here is federal legalization. And the reason I say that is because if it does become federal legal and your Phil Morris's of the world and uh, Altria's of the world, they, they start to sniff around in this space and start to produce cannabis on a commercial scale. Uh, they're not going to be buying from the grow generations of the world. And a lot of those cultivating facilities are going to be um, un- unneeded. And so I think that's the, the biggest risk in the, the longer term. Now, I don't think that's a risk near term. It doesn't seem like the, they're going to legalize it in the near term under uh, President Biden. But I think that's a big risk. So overall, I'm just 
I don't love this name. I rather go own some of the multi-state operators that have uh, better businesses that have good brands and distribution. Whereas this is a name that is not that profitable, although it is profitable. Uh, it doesn't have great cash flow, issuing a bunch of shares, and still trading at pretty expensive price after this run. So uh, I'm still going to pass on Grow Generation Corp, G-R-W-G. Now, my focus point today is based on this. making rapid-fire changes to take advantage of market trends is easier said than done. And I'm highlighting the story because it's very interesting. This is from Morningstar, and they're looking at their tactical asset allocation fund category. And this is a category that typically shifts between asset classes to try to benefit from market trends. And oftentimes, individual investors do this. Sometimes these asset allocation funds or tactical asset allocation funds make wholesale changes. They tend to be overweight certain asset classes, underweight others. And they shy away from areas that might suffer from certain economic, uh, macroeconomic trends. Uh, and the data says that this is, once again, easier said than done. As a broad category, they definitely don't keep pace with your plain vanilla standard allocation funds like a balance fund, your typical 60-40 stock bond mix. But if you dig into the details, you'll know that these tactical allocation funds have various different strategies. Many of them don't work very well, but some of them do. One example, the AQR multi-asset, it, talks, it uses a risk parity approach, and it balances between stocks, bonds, and inflation-sensitive assets like gold, tips, etc., and they use a model using value, momentum, quality, market sentiment as well. There's others that have a mix between stocks, bonds, REITs, commodities, and money market cash. So what this goes to show is when you're looking at those data points about, oh, your average fund category underperforms the, the index, well, yeah, it's always going to. Why? Because this is a fun category, for example, that is near the top of Morningstar's database when it comes to average fund fees. For the average tactical allocation fund, they charge 1.55% per year. So that's really the big drag here. There are strategies within the tactical mix that are successful, even though they have higher fees. And so that's why when you're looking at funds in general or strategies in general, you have to take, take into account multiple factors, not just the fee, not just the category they're in, but how, how well have they done historically? And will that strategy be repeatable? Now we're heading into a quick break. Ramiro from San Jose, hang on. You will be next on Invest Talk at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, 
or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced? Or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. Let's go to Ramiro in San Jose looking at Palantir. Hi. Um, yeah, I was calling to get your opinion. Uh, I'm hoping to uh, buy this stock at, uh, for a long term. And I just and I see that it's been running up, and I just want your opinion as to at what price range you feel would be a good uh, starting point to dollar cost average in. Okay. Well, this is Palantir. This is a recent IPO, and they develop software for institutions to protect individual privacy and prevent misuse of information. Uh, but what they really do is they provide solutions for the federal government. And I kind of look at Palantir as as the new Lockheed Martin. Uh, they provide a, so a software platform called Gotham, which focuses on government intelligence and the defense sectors. And so that's really what you're, you're buying into here is the Lockheed Martin of the intelligence industry. And 
if you're going to buy into it, you're buying into it at a pretty hefty valuation. Uh, right now, they're trailing 12-month free cash flow of $62 million, And this is a $56 billion market cap. So it's very expensive. Even if you go based on revenues, enterprise value to revenues are 38 times. And they are growing about 50% year over year on the revenue side. And so that's really your, what you're betting on is that the U.S. government is going to tie themselves to this product and grow their spending in this space over time. And a lot of that will go to Palantir. So it's very expensive, but and I wouldn't buy it here. I think it is, it's just not at a level where I would get uh, excited about owning it. But it is a name on my watch list because – it is probably the the leader in this space that will get more and more government dollars throughout time. Uh, another one that you might want to look at is, I believe, Snow is another one uh, that that is in this space, not as profitable, um, but something to look at. But this is a space I think you should be looking at. I just think Palantir is an, is pretty expensive. Thanks for the call. Let's go to James in Denver. Asking about 401k. Hi, sir. Thank you for taking the call. I always listen to your podcast whenever I can um, or live. Uh, question for you. Uh, I've got a, a high salary. Uh, I contribute regularly to my 401k, work for an employer that does a 4% match. Uh, my problem is that my employer, uh, their 401k, I don't know what you call it, handler is John Hancock. And you pick from a list of their 40 or 50 funds, if you're familiar with that process. Mm -hmm. And all Mm -hmm. those funds, I really, I don't know how to say it, I really don't care for. uh, And the expense ratios are incredibly high, like 1.3% expense. What can Mm -hmm. someone like me do to where I'm not, I mean, am I stupid to contribute to the 401k or or what have you? Uh, What can someone like me do if you don't like the 401k? Uh, I guess, options, uh, fund options. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it's a good question. The first thing I would do is go to your HR department and find out, do you have the ability to opt into a self-directed brokerage account in your 401k we so you can not. pick any investment? Okay, you do not. The next thing is I would go to your HR department who, by the way, and you might want to mention this to them, has a fiduciary duty to you, the employee, to offer you a plan that is in your best interest. And if the fees are incredibly high and you're locked into just a set of funds uh, that aren't that great, there may be some issues there. And they must listen to you. They don't have to act, but they should listen to you. Because technically, you could sue them for breach of their fiduciary duty, for not offering you the best plan that fits your needs. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, sir, it does. I'll, I'll be honest. We are in the process and have been for a year to look for another, I don't know what you'd be called a broker or, or what you call it in terms like record keeper is usually what you call it. Yes, sir. Uh, but we just haven't had any luck and it's, I should clarify, this is a smaller company. It's not like a, you know, a Microsoft yeah. size company. Right. And so, but it stinks because I, you know, I just don't like the 40 or, and this is not a bash on John Hancock, by the way, but their funds are just incredibly expensive and, and they're not, yeah. the, you know, Vanguard. One idea I had was 
since my employer matches at 4%, I was thinking, well, do I just reduce my contribution to 4% and I'm doing currently 10% and they do a 4% match on top. Just do four for 4% and then do kind of like my own little self-directed outside of my company. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, you could do like your own IRA. So that that is one another option is, like you said, make sure you get that full 4% match because even though the fees are high on the funds, you're not going to beat the 100% return uh, you would get with that 4% uh, contribution. And then anything else, you can contribute, max out your IRA. And it, and then if you have more, you can you can add to, to your 401k. But yeah, that is something, that is a way to think about it um, to try to get more money outside of your 401k tax deferred in something that is more flexible and you can go buy whatever you want within within an IRA. So uh, I like your thinking there. But uh, number one would be to push them harder on switching 401k providers and also pushing them to allow some sort of self-directed brokerage account within your 401k as well that even if they pick another provider that Maybe isn't that great. Maybe you're not too fond of the funds that you'll be able to opt into a self-directed brokerage account and start to pick your own position. So great call, James. I know a lot of you out there probably are dealing with that, or maybe you just don't know that the funds within your plan aren't that great. Or maybe you don't know that your employer has a fiduciary duty to you to provide you with a plan that is in your best interest. Not theirs, not the salesman of the 401k, but in your best interest. And technically, you could sue them or your employee, fellow employees could. So great question, great call because the industry, a lot of people get stuck with poor plans and don't have a lot of options to really drive good returns longer term. Let's go to Leo in Hawaii looking at VF Corp. Hi, Justin. Uh, thanks for taking my call and for the podcast. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on VF Corporation, um, looking to buy into it, and just wanted to hear your your uh, advice on uh, at what price point would be a good uh, buying opportunity. All right. This is VF Corp. Uh, in fact, one of my good friends, she used to work for VF Corp for, uh, what was it? North Face, yeah. North Face is one of their brands along with Vans, Timberland, Supreme, Dickies, and one of the largest apparel brand companies, conglomerates really in the world. $26 billion market cap. It is down pretty significantly from its 52-week high of around $91. It's now at $67 in change at the close today, down about 26% from that high. It is into decent support, I will say that. Revenues year over year up 104%. Earnings expected to rise 17% next year from this year's earnings, which obviously are a big jump from last year when uh, things were, were down pretty dramatically. And yields about 3%, so I like that. And historically, VF Corp has had solid, consistent profitability and cash flows. So I, I like I like that. I like the elevated level of return and equity if you go back over the last decade or so, the return equity has been in the low teens on average. And pre-pandemic, it was up into the low 30% range. So very, very strong, very, very strong cash flow. Trailing 12 months, about a billion dollars in free cash flow on $26 billion market cap. Not bad. Not bad at all. They really don't have, let me look at their debt levels. Yeah, very modest debt. 
let's look at their enterprise value to revenue is at about three times, which over the last decade or so is about in the middle. Uh, it's not so it wouldn't be considered overvalued until you are overvalued until you're above about four. Now it's at about 2.8. It wouldn't be undervalued until you're around two. And so that could be another 20% down from here. And that would be around the lows of last year in the low 50s. And frankly, that's where I would get excited about it because technically it's weak. It's in a downtrend. But I like that you're looking at this name. And I don't see an indication this is going to turn around in the short term. And my value is a bit lower than where it's at right now, about $65 a share. And it's at 67. So you've gotten down to about fair value, but I like to buy things that are undervalued. So in the low 50s, that's where I would be more excited about picking it up. But I like that it's on your watch list. Monitor it. Uh, but the technicals are just too poor, and it's not quite undervalued yet. Thanks for the call. 88.99 chart, 88.992.4278. Now let's touch on the commodity space as a whole. And investors are increasingly paying attention to the commodity space and investing more and more money, including uh, ourselves and for our clients. And this has pushed prices up uh, for things like natural gas to aluminum. Producers like Exxon and Chevron are now under pressure to minimize environmental pollution and thus, they're limiting spending on new production, new supply. And they're refocusing on returning money to shareholders, stock buybacks, dividends, paying down debt, etc. Now, spending on oil and gas exploration and production is now forecast to be 40 to 50% below 2014 levels for the foreseeable future. Even with prices uh, like uh, for things like copper, at their highest level in years, annual spending by mining companies is projected to remain about 30% below its 2012 peak over the next five years. So despite these higher prices, you're not seeing a standard supply response. And that's typically what happens in the commodity space. Higher prices creates an incentive. People and corporations typically act on incentives, and it typically will drive up supply. Well, that's not happening now. Why? It's because the incentives are now different. There's now incentives to act like you're more environmentally friendly and increasing supply, increasing more mining and drilling is not environmentally friendly. And this makes the longer-term outlook for prices very murky. Because you never know what's going to happen with supply. doesn't mean there isn't going to be supply. It's just going to be constrained by policy. Now, an index of commodities is now on pace for its largest annual percentage advance on record, going back three decades, according to FactSet. Now, this year's climb in oil has consumers paying its highest level for gasoline ever. It's about $3.20 per gallon. Natural gas recently hit a seven-and-a-half-year high above $5, million, $5 per British thermal unit. And same thing's happening in Europe. Europe, you're seeing a record high, not just a seven-and-a-half-year high, but a record high for natural gas. 
Copper prices hit an all-time high in May because of supply constraints, uh, because because uh, of environmental concerns from Minnesota to Alaska. You have aluminum that has now also recently hit record highs because Chinese smelters cannot are, are, are they're limiting the power that they can use to create aluminum. And so this is the backdrop here. Demand is going up pretty much at its standard rate. Yeah, we're getting a, 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 a little bit of a surge because of reopening, but most of that's behind us. But the real story here is lack of supply and the lack of supply response. So it's getting tougher for these large companies to develop new sources of supply. Now, one thing they're, they're turning to is recycling old materials, green production methods, so they can appease the climate-focused activists that are doing things like winning board seats at Exxon. And even though many companies are weary of lifting spending on this output, uh, you're seeing another reason why they're not increasing spending is because they saw what happened last time. They saw that commodity prices sink when they did increase supply. So why is it in their best interest to not only upset the powers that be, <laughs> the, the climate activists and the politicians, but also they can hurt their industry as a whole? So that's where we're at now, and I don't see this really abating. And the big story is what will happen. How, how will there be a response once prices really get out of control? Right now, prices are high. People are worried. But there isn't yet that fervor for a change to bring prices more in line. People are talking about it. There's chatter, but it's not a political football yet, but I do think it will be. And the big question is what will politicians do? Do they shift towards things like uranium and nuclear power? Do they just accelerate the green revolution? We will see, but the odds are commodity prices will be pressured higher because of lack of supply. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart Got a question for Steve or Justin? Just kind of wondering if this stock is a value trap. Now is a good time to call Invest Talk. Uh, I think there's likely a pullback here. 888 chart Invest Talk is here to help. And when you download the free Invest Talk podcasts, don't forget to rate and review. The phone lines are open 888-99-CHART. Now, in the next Invest Talk, the story behind this question What will happen when the Fed starts tapering? Tapering represents a teeing up of future rate hikes, though they appear to be at least a year in the distance. But now let's go back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for this question. 
Hi, Stephen Justin. My name is Thomas. I just had a question about big lots. Been wanting to get into this play for quite some time now. It looks like it's on a pretty big pullback, but it seems to be in a downtrend. Just wondering what price you think this would be a good time to buy. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, looking at big lots, and this has pulled back. It's about 36% off its 52-week high. And we actually like this name. We own it for clients and been picking it up uh, a little bit more aggressively down here right around the 100-week moving average. And I I think this is a very strong value. Yes, the earnings are supposed to slow from last year's $7.35 a share, but this year is still supposed to make $6.04 and $6.08 next year on a $46 stock. And they are buying back shares rather aggressively, which we like as well. So uh, not only are they increasing that dividend uh, with the with the cash flow that they're producing, but they're also buying back shares. Dividend is now up to $1.20 per share, but they've been buying back shares, like I said, 69 million shares outstanding in 2012, down to 37 million today, uh, about 10%. Uh, of their float they've been buying back over the last couple of years. So we like that. And then you go to profitability. Over the last decade, return equity is averaged in the mid-20% range. Very, very consistent, very, very profitable. Solid balance sheet, uh, not not a huge grower, uh, but their their business model is clearly in demand. And as more money flows to uh, the lower income cohort of our population due to the stimulus packages, that's certainly benefiting. Uh, places like Big Lots, and uh, they're trading an enterprise value to EBITDA of two and a half, two and a half. Why? Because they have a lot of cash on their balance sheet just sitting there. Even though they're buying back shares, it remains very, very cheap. So uh, I'm a big fan of Big Lots, and I think it is at some support. Now, before that, I discussed a little bit about uh, the Fed. I'm going to tee up Steve for tomorrow and kind of unpack what happened with uh, the Fed announcement yesterday and basically they signaled that likely it's likely that they will announce tapering in November and tapering is reducing their 120 billion dollars a month of asset purchases as soon as the November 2nd and 3rd meeting so November 3rd is likely when they will announce it now most fed officials agreed that the that a gradual process that concludes around the middle of next year is likely appropriate. So you're talking about maybe a, a nine-month process on $120 billion, you're maybe 10 to $15 billion per month in tapering is, is what you would you would guess, probably 15, right? Because currently you're at $80 billion a month in treasuries and $40 billion a month in mortgage-backed security. So it would make sense if you did say $10 billion a month in tapering on the treasury side and $5 billion on the, uh, on, on the mortgage-backed security side, and in about eight months, meaning about mid-next year, you're going to conclude with that tapering. Now, clearly that is what the Fed is signaling, and that's what you should expect. Now, what's interesting is that there was a question during the – Q&A during the press conference of, do you need to see a blowout report on the employment side for you to actually taper? And he said, no, just has to be a solid report. So I think that'll be a big indication. You're coming up here 
When is the first Friday of the month? Remember, the first Friday is of every month is when they announce the jobs report from the previous month. And that's the first, September 1st. That's just eight days away. So I think that's a, a big test. Does that come in at six, seven, eight hundred thousand jobs? Or is it something like we saw last month of just a couple hundred thousand jobs and maybe push the tapering off even more? So that's really the signal here is we're ready. We just have to see a little more data between now and November 3rd to show that the economy is remains on solid footing. Not great. Just doesn't have to be deteriorating at a rapid pace. And that is the takeaway from the Fed announcement. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. Now, over 35 million. Get yours anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review. And if you do leave a review on iTunes and leave a question with it, we will prioritize your answer. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities. Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, Call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is President and Justin Klein Chief Executive Officer of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial.